Hello everybody and welcome to What Would The Smart Party Do? This week I'm joined as ever with Baz. How are you doing Baz? I'm really well thanks mate, how are you? Yep, living the dream. All the more so because we've got a special guest down once more. Video game writer, author, RPG creator and many other things besides. We have with us today Raphael Chandler. How are you doing Raphael? Fantastic, thanks for having me on the show. Absolute pleasure. So, you've done all kinds of things in your time. We've mentioned uh, mentioned a few of them there at the start. Perhaps we could go back to the the very first game or games that I got involved with of yours, which I found uh, really interesting, which were uh, at the time called the Books of Pandemonium, starting with Dread and then leading to Spite. And, and more recently, you kind of reveled them all up together into Pandemonium as a whole set. Now, they're quite unusual, aren't they? I've played games before, like perhaps in Nominee, which is Angels and Demons, and that sort of thing. And they involve them, but in a really different way and perhaps an interesting sort of premise. Could you give us a little bit more about that, just for our listeners? Sure. The idea behind uh, Dread, the first book of Pandemonium, was that there was a holy war between angels and demons being fought on Earth. And uh, the angels, recognizing that they, they couldn't act in, in the affairs of mortals, recruited a bunch of sociopaths, junkies, losers, psychotics, and gave them holy power to wage their war against demonkind. And then there was a follow-up book called Spite, the second book of Pandemonium, which is about demons who realize that angels are infinitely worse. <laughs> and so they go out and do the exact same thing and, and find themselves a group of, of people with nothing to lose, give them demonic power, and send them out to kill as many angels as possible. Because the worst thing a demon might do is urge you to give in to your darker impulses, which is really where all the fun is anyhow. But an angel will burn your city to the ground. So the, the, the culmination, I guess, when I put both of these books together in a single volume and called it Pandemonio is, is the notion that at this point you're just at war with anything that moves, angel, demon, or other. Um, and it's, it's, it's a pretty grotesque game filled with, with bile and, and all sorts of body horror. That's a bit of fun. So I've, I've heard it referred to as Splatterpunk, is that, which seems like I think it's the only game of its kind in that sort of sense. But it's got a real sort of mixture of things in there that, for me, was um, completely new in many ways. So the, the premise itself is, as you've described, uh, quite out there. The system involved lots of D12s and all kinds of funky moves and stunts, like literally Hail Marys, which someone might call for another game. There was a stunt called Hail Mary and that sort of thing. Uh, a ton of spells, all kinds of things. Was it really just a, a sort of like grab bag of all the things you could think of that might be cool that you stuck in one place? Or was there, was there more to it than that? Was there something else behind it? No, it, it really was just a list of things that I enjoy when I'm playing. And really, the, the funny thing is that it, it has everything to do with my gaming group that I've been playing with for um, 16, 17 years now. Uh, the same bunch of louts. And they <laughs> tend to decapitate anyone they defeat because you never know if they'll come back. They think that interrogation and torture are the same thing. So, for example, if there's an eyewitness to a crime, they immediately bust out the nail gun and the handsaw. They are... <laughs> <laughs> and they're the nicest bunch of people in real life. But when they, when they play, uh, their characters are, generally speaking, amoral and really, uh, really single-minded in their pursuit of victory at all costs. So the game really emerged from, number one, my fascination with 80s horror films. I, I, I really stopped developing in the 1980s. Sometime in the mid-1980s, I sort of hit um, 
a boundary beyond which I could not progress, and I'm, I'm quite happy festering there. And so I love the imagery of the occult, the, the demonology, but a very surface sort of demonology. Some people will email me and say, oh, you should really read the Lesser Key of Solomon. And I, I flipped through it and said, that's very long. There are a lot of words. I don't know. Eh. Also, some of the names of the demons in the Lesser Key were somewhat less than intimidating. Bufus, the Great, you know, and I thought, well, that's, that's lovely, but I, I, I don't know. I'm not sure this is for me. Uh, so it's a very surface sort of uh, satanic panic uh, demonology combined with 80s action movie tropes, the shotgun, the exploding car. One bullet is all it takes to set a Hyundai on fire and take out a city block. Everyone knows that. Um, <laughs> Clearly. So you, you, you add the, the spectacular over-the-top stunts. Every spell must be absolutely repulsive, right? And I, I tend to look at movies like Videodrome, The Thing as my inspiration for the body horror behind a lot of the magic in the book. Sort of put that all together in a blender, and then I, just to be ridiculous, picked um, a, a system that I hadn't seen anywhere else, which was a D12-based dice pool system. And really, I think the only other games I can think of off the top of my head that used the D12 like that were Cartoon Action Hour, which came out around the same time, 2000-something. And later, I think Pokethulu, the Pokemon Cthulhu mashup. <laughs> but there haven't been a lot of D12-based games, so I thought, well, this will be, be original and new, not realizing, of course, that it would also be an impediment to customers who'd say, oh, I have to buy 100 12-sided dice. <laughs> no, I don't want to do that. So that was a problem, but a fun one. Um, although, really, there was a, a fundamental reason for it. The characters in Dread, the first book of Pandemonium, are called Disciples, and there were 12 of them, so I thought a D12 was thematically appropriate. And then each face of the D12 is a pentagon, which you could fit a pentacle or pentagram inside. I thought that was nice. But at any rate, the, the D12 thing hasn't been too much of a hassle, I suppose. Enough people have bought the game and played it that I, I guess it's okay. Yeah, I, I probably own more D12s than any sensible man should do now, just as a result of playing your games, to be honest. So I thought I would start a trend. It, it didn't happen. <laughs> Well, the D12 manufacturers are probably dice manufacturers that have buckets of them. I'm glad that I'm about and your game exists, I guess, because it's, uh, <laughs> it's evened out the shelf space a little bit. The D12 is the king of dice, as everybody knows. The only mm. trouble is if you roll anything that's a single digit on the D12, you feel like you rolled a one in any other dice. It's a pessimist dice, I think. That's <laughs> a good point. I actually read not too long ago that a French mathematician had concluded that the universe is shaped like a dodecahedron, a 12-sided die. So I thought that was nice. I actually put that in one of the books. Yeah. Typical French, I might add. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So um, your game itself, do you think it's easier to play, or those games, sorry, are easier to play than something like Cthulhu, for example, which seems to be, they involve a lot of investigation or the kind of the supposed horror there that people quite often miss because of the tropes, and we all know it's deep ones in the end, so everybody laughs and jokes and winks at each other when they know what the bad guy is. Whereas um, the Pandemonium books are a bit more kind of honest in terms of like, you know what you're getting, and you play to the tropes, and that's what's rewarded in play, rather than perhaps some other games try and emulate horror, but you don't get there because, because of in-jokes. Does that make sense? It does, and I think that's part of the reason why I prefer the term splatterpunk to horror when describing Pandemonio and its precursors because I honestly 
have a, a bit of difficulty getting uh, horror from from the players uh, in in no small part because in my gaming group I simply don't know if they have the imagination for it, and that's <laughs> that's a requirement, right? the The character of uh, an H.P. Lovecraft tale is by nature sensitive and contemplates cosmic horror at the drop of a hat. Oh, there are rats in the walls? My mind has been blasted past midnight charnel houses in the et cetera, et cetera, the abyss and the cyclopean this and that. And you're like, well, they're, they're, they're rats. Just get some poison. No, 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 no. I've, I have seen Azathoth. Well, all right. So you're very imaginative and sensitive to this sort of thing, and that helps. And the player characters in a game like Call of Cthulhu must by default also share that. And a single joke can completely derail the attempt at embracing cosmic horror and going insane. And also, of course, there's the natural instinct towards preserving your character as long as possible, even though it is fun when the tentacles come out and, and you're dragged into the muck and so forth. Um, with a game like Pandemonio, there's less of a uh, focus on that because your character really is part of the problem. Your character is nightmarish. Normal people see your character cast a spell. Your your The skin of your stomach rips open and serpents climb out of your bowels and attack someone. Normal people in the game, non-player characters, will perceive your player character to be the source of the horror. So there's less of a focus in Pandemonio on perceiving something cosmic, something dreadful, and more of an understanding that the flesh itself is subject to that horror. It's not anywhere near as cerebral as Call of Cthulhu. So it's a totally different flavor of, of gameplay. And like I said, it, honestly, at the end of the day, a lot of the game design decisions that I've made in my life are simply reactions to the sociopaths that I game with on a regular basis. And I, I think that might also explain um, why Pandemonio is pretty simple, right? There aren't that many rules to keep track of. It's, I mean, the, the, the rule section is, is pretty light. A lot of the book is either descriptions of magic or descriptions of monsters because, of course, the characters want, or the players, rather, want to cast new spells, fight new monsters. Um, so that informed a lot of the decisions there. Yeah, for sure. And I think um, one of the... The sort of like I've mentioned this uh, before about um, xenophobia or the fear of the unknown, and it's something I was listening back to one of our casts with uh, the good friends of Jackson Elias when we were discussing is there too much Cthulhu in gaming, and we kind of had a, a face off about that at Dragon Meet uh, and a big debate, and it's that kind of fear of the unknown that um, drives things, and perhaps Cthulhu is a little bit too in our pop culture now, and everybody knows about it. So you kind of, as a description comes out, you know what you're getting to a degree. So one of the things about um, Pandemonio and then later books um, is perhaps that you've got these weird and wonderful creatures but you have no idea what they are because they are unique, it's not something out of Tolkien or from Lovecraft books or whatever else like that, they are just like a it gets described to you and think well what, what the fuck's this that fighting like how do we kill it, what do we even do with it You know, and that gives a sort of frisson of excitement I think to the players that you've, you've absolutely no idea what it is that you're facing at this point or what to do about it Yeah that was definitely a goal, I, I love adore uh lovecraft's creations and all of the role-playing games that i've i've enjoyed that are based on his works i mean you and i've played call of cthulhu together it's it's a blast i love it but there is uh, a delight if not necessarily in my case a fear of it it's just a need for it for the unknown and when playing call of cthulhu when i don't know when i'm reading a, a, a or playing through a campaign book like the Mountains of Madness adaptation, Beyond the Mountains of Madness. I know what to expect, therefore I am performing 
in a way the fear that yeah. my character probably should be feeling but of course uh, there's no apprehension whatsoever i i know more or less how things are going to shake out it's a question of how exactly but in the end there's there's you know uh, you know, if your character finds a Necronomicon or what have you, you know more or less what's going to happen, how it's going to play out. I did enjoy Silent Legions immensely, and I'm looking forward to running it. That's by Sinomine Publishing. I don't know if I pronounced that right, but um, it's a fantastic source book for sandbox-style Call of Cthulhu gameplay with an OSR style, but really, there's not a whole lot of daylight between its rule set and first edition Call of Cthulhu. I, I definitely think I could hack it pretty easily, right? I think I could do, I could take Silent Legions and work it into a first edition or even later edition Call of Cthulhu game without too much trouble. But it's glorious because there are all these tables for randomly generating elder things and elder gods and eldritch horrors and so forth that can definitely spice up an existing campaign by... Um, but making it all feel very different and fresh and new because you don't know what to expect because even if you've encountered um, you know night gaunts or what have you in the past when, when you introduce some of these funky new creations it's it's new and dangerous all over again because you don't know what to expect yeah absolutely so some of your later works you've kind of rolled over into um, the OSR world a little bit um, in terms of uh, you came up with the Tarotic Tome which I think used some of the monsters from your earlier books to a degree and then some new ones as well chucked in there uh, and you stylized it very much on the cover like the old D&D books. Uh, and then, of course, you've got things like Obscene Separate Religion and No Salvation for uh, Witches, which came out of Lamentations kind of thing. So do, do you think these kind of um, OSR, uh, I don't want to call it a movement because it's not actually you know a, a collective group of people, but do, do you think it gives you a bit of a springboard as an independent author to kind of put stuff out and then that's accepted by a, an audience do you know what I mean there's a ready-made group of people there for OSI stuff which is all about like you said the, the tables of cool stuff and things you've never seen before on weird and wonderful stuff definitely I I like designing game systems but I, I confess there are times when I think I should probably just focus on the content because I, I'm nowhere near as good at, at game design as, as other luminaries in the business or even people who are not luminaries or people who are actually completely <laughs> unknown. I'm not really all that confident about my game design abilities at this point. I look back on it and I think, well, you know, I could have just used fate or something. Um, so when I started working on Teratic Tome, it was simply because I thought, you know, I've designed Dread and I've designed Spite. And this is before I came up with the name Pandemonio for the the new version of the game which combined the two I thought you know I'd really like to just put out a monster manual because I really like the monsters I've created and I'd like to give them a little bit of attention elsewhere which game system should I use and I started looking at all of these other games that were out there and thinking well maybe I'd put it out there as a manual for Dungeon World but then I thought I don't know if the Dungeon World crowd would like these things so I, I started thinking gosh what what systems do I actually know and I mean, I've played a lot of games and thought, oh, that was all right. It was okay. But in the end, when somebody says, hey, I'd like to learn to play role-playing games, I always say, well, let's bust out the old Moldvay D&D books, you know, from the 70s. Let's do the Stranger Things bit and sit around and play these old games with old dice. That's where you start. You know, then you can move on to your your story games or, or what have you. So I thought, why not just do an old-school D&D book? And so that's what Teratic Tome is. I literally just took maybe 30, 40, maybe 50 of the monsters from uh, Dread and Spite and tooled them down, you know, to a, to a medieval uh, setting, removed any references to guns or heroin, 
and then I created a bunch <laughs> of other new <laughs> created a bunch of other new monsters and had those illustrated and yeah bound it up in a hardcover printed to Lulu with an orange spine and the font choice was all very old school so it did look a bit like the old monster manuals from the 70s and it was done as a lark really just because I thought you know I really want people to like my monsters <laughs> really just I'd like a little attention <laughs> It validate me, and um, <laughs> you like it a bit too much. <laughs> Do you know people thought, "Oh, that's that's really wild." Um, one review said uh, Chandler must have invented these monsters while smoking weed, mixed with the ashes of Ed Gain, the, uh, the serial killer. And I thought, well, that's that's lovely. I want that on my tombstone. And <laughs> but then I discovered, you know, it is actually a lot easier to to create scenarios and adventures and monster manuals and magical items with a system like basic D&D simply because I did play it for about 20 something years and still do it makes it a lot easier um and I think ultimately that's it that that's the the sole reason for my involvement in the OSR is the system is easy to learn I learned it when I was 10 and I'm getting older now and it's harder to <laughs> I tried to learn D&D 5th edition and Pathfinder and I, I just I felt like I was doing my taxes and I said I can't I can't do this. <laughs> I don't I don't have So that, that thing about the 80s is is absolutely bang on then, right? So if if that's your favorite music and your favorite films, it stands to reason you should be running it with Redbox, right? Indeed. Indeed. And Lamentations of the Flame Princess is very heavily influenced one would say, uh, you know, uh, by um by the older editions of, of D&D, certainly nothing much to do with AD&D first or second or any later edition, which made it very easy for me to get into. But also uh, Jim Raggi's horror uh, and heavy metal aesthetic cleaves very close to my own heart. Um, I mean, you can see the Iron Maiden posters behind me and the horror movie DVDs and all of that. I'm, I'm, it's, it's my meat and milk, as they say. So it was only natural. Um, that I would eventually wind up working with him. And I had approached him uh, right around the time the Terratic Tome had come out, and he said, well, let's let's work on a project. And the first <clears> one that we actually worked on was really interesting. It was called No Salvation for Witches. And he said, well, let's, let's kickstart this book as a pay-what-you-want print product, which I thought sounded really audacious and, and not actually very logical or wise. So, of course, I was interested. <laughs> That sounds yeah. like a recipe for just throwing your money away, really. I mean, how does, it, how does he do that? You've got to sign up for that kind of mad talk. If everybody gives, if everybody gives us one euro, we're f- <laughs> fucked. Yeah. And, uh, and he said, yeah, that's, that's true. And often when presented with a red flag like that, he'll say, yeah, yeah, let's do it. And so we did, and it worked really well. It actually, uh, it, it turned out to be, a success as as a Kickstarter. Well, I think we did it on Indiegogo, but the, the crowdfunding was successful. It was not uh, a proposition where we lost money. We were able to make enough to actually pay for the printing and shipping and distribution. And it, it looks lovely, and he hired some fantastic artists. Uh, so he spent the money, you know. He, he, he hired some really good mm. people for the cover and interior art and put a little bookmark in there and this little ribbon, and mm. it's, it's a very pretty volume. I was really happy with the way it turned out, so he and I have collaborated a few times since then, and I'm working on a new project for him that, although I can't talk about, it's definitely in line with everything else that I've done with him so far. I'm really glad that I met him. He is a bit of a polarizing figure in that he seems to enjoy winding people up a bit. I think I think <laughs> I think he does like that. 
but boy, he's he's a great person to work with. Out of all the publishers I've ever had the pleasure of working with, and I include mega corporations like Sony and <laughs> Ubisoft <laughs> and uh, and all the other book publishers that I've worked with in the nonfiction realm. Everybody, I, I honestly, I, I I've never worked with anybody like him. It's a terrific experience. Well, yeah, it's, it's very odd, isn't it? Because he produced a book for Free RPG Day last year, which was called Vaginas and Magic, um, which is full enough about magic vaginas uh, or magic coming out of them or you needing one to be able to use magic. Um, and that was like that caused a lot of frowny faces. Certainly in the UK, there's a lot of people are like, how dare you bring this book out? But by the same token, um, it was like, you know, beautiful, like full color cover, hardback, hardback for a free RPG day that you're giving away in stores. You know what I mean? His production values and, and the, the, the effort he puts into actually publishing stuff, which is his job, is second to none. So if, even if you don't like some of the content, you've got to admire the man for the, the amount of stuff he puts out and the quality with which the products are you know, released to the world. I agree. I, I, and I enjoy that part of it immensely because I, I do recognize that over the years, you know, the Terratic Tome was probably, probably the best looking book that I've put out as a self-published RPG creator because some of the creative decisions I made along the way were obviously made by someone who doesn't have a background in art or graphic design and, and learned along the way. Right? I learned layout by laying books out and realizing later when reading scathing reviews that I had made colossal mistakes. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's all right. You learn as you go. Uh, but he has done a fantastic job on every single Lamentations product that I have in my, my small library, they, they all look really gorgeous. And I applaud him for that. As for the content itself, I don't... I, I've never actually cared. And I, I think part of that is because I grew up during the Satanic Panic and also the days of the PMRC. Uh, I grew up in a time when parents were absolutely terrified that their children were being exposed to media that would pervert them turn them into Satanists mm. or what have you. Um, there was a, a concerned effort in my neighborhood. Parents actually believed in back-masked heavy metal lyrics that could be played in reverse on a, a record player. <laughs> it was known. It was known. <laughs> there, was, uh, there was a kid who wore a T-shirt, a Megadeth T-shirt, and the T-shirt included the phrase speed metal. Because Megadeth, at the time, was a speed metal band, and nowhere near as fast as, say, Slayer or what have you. But still, I mean, they were they were a speed metal band. It made sense for them to put that on a shirt. Parents were convinced that this actually referenced the drug, speed, <laughs> and were absolutely certain this kid was a drug dealer, and we were forbidden from hanging out with him. And I I see <laughs> that sort of reactionary panic everywhere these days there is um you know we 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 do live in a time when it is possible to find something to be offended about anywhere you go because of course Mm. part of the joy of the 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 current scene and that i don't just include role-playing games anything any sort of entertainment media filmmaking music the gatekeepers are no longer uh, the only means by which one can produce work and publish it and put it out there. It is possible to self-publish in a, a variety of venues, and as a consequence, we are inundated with material. So if you are looking for something to get mad about, you are in luck. It's everywhere. <laughs> it is everywhere. But I, I don't think that Jim's focus is necessarily uh, shock value or winding people up. 
I, I don't know for sure. I haven't really talked to him about this at length. I've, I've read what he has to say on the subject, and it does seem to me he's genuinely creating things he himself enjoys and wants to play. And I think as, as long as that's the case, more power to him. Even if I would look at a book and say, nah, I don't know if I'd run that for my group, I, I could say that about any role-playing game designer or, or publisher. So I, I applaud him for just making the sorts of things that he enjoys that are obviously inspired by his passions. And I, I don't really pay too much attention to, for example, game stores that have apparently banned his books as a result of, of Vaginas or Magic or any of his other books. I don't, in the end, I don't think it's that important. Besides, to be completely honest, with all due respect to game stores, I don't think any number of game stores could actually put a dent in his sales by banning his books simply because he does so much great work reaching out to his customers directly so it's a moot point i think in the uk it's really easy for us to underestimate that whole satanic panic stuff that you were talking about before because over here in the uk our our starter game was probably warhammer fantasy roleplay which was full of bubonic plague and death and chaos demons and uh, demons with their breasts showing can you believe such a thing and um and and even the, the stiff upper lipped brit I think we sometimes over here, maybe guys have backed me up, maybe won't. When we, when we read about some of the stuff that happened across the other side of the pond, we thought it was a joke that people would have their books burned or that people would be pulled out of school or have their families moved to another state just to get away from the, the bad crowd you'd fallen in with because they had some D4s and magic missiles. But it, that, that stuff's legit, isn't it? And, and do, you think that, do you think that's coming back with, with the kind of the new environment you find yourselves in over there? I do believe that there is, and I must be cautious in how I phrase this. No, fuck that. Let's just say it. No one's listening. Go Nobody's going for it. Go for it. We've only got two listeners. <laughs> well, do you know, the Puritans weren't necessarily about purity. The, the Puritans were about fanaticism. That was, at one point, the definition of the word Puritan, somebody who is fanatical in their zeal in pursuit of, of the ideology in question. And, and it is a recurring theme in our politics, in discussions of sexuality, in discussions of private life, in discussions of entertainment. It's now infiltrated the world of sports. There is literally no field of human endeavor in which you cannot find a faction of persons who insist that they are the authority, the arbiter over what, what should be enjoyed or pursued or explored. That's not going away anytime soon. It's enjoyed a recent resurgence, and there will be a backlash, and then the backlash to the backlash. It's, in, it's inevitable, and it's cyclical. The, the, the satanic panic of the 1980s was replicated in the 1990s when people like Eminem and, and Marilyn Manson courted controversy for sales and enjoyed the uh, extraordinary assistance of the religious right who protested... Um, Marilyn Manson, for example, outside of his concerts, boosting his sales and, and ticket sales as well. I don't think it's going away, and I don't think that this moment in time is anything particularly new to the United States. It feels new to the younger generation because they didn't live through the 90s, they didn't live through the 80s, but it it is a constant here in the United States. And in no small part, I think that has something to do with, with the religious fundamental foundations of, of this country. The Smart Party are raising funds to help with the running costs of the show. We use Patreon, which is kind of like a modern magic item that turns you into a connoisseur of all that is good in gaming. 
to show your support, just to head over to patreon.com slash thesmartparty. You can donate a dollar, a credit, a copper piece or a fiver per month. It all goes into the portable whole of web hosting costs and helps us look after you every month with new Smart Party content. Patreons get a big thanks from us, some backer-only goodies as and when, and the warm, confident glow of the just and righteous to help you sleep at night. Join the Smart Party at patreon.com today and tell all your friends tomorrow. Cheers! To circles more back to RPG, I guess. So sorry, that was probably my diversion there. But um, it's things like if you read about Innsmouth and that kind of thing and you think, you know, there's this deep one uprising... And then that got put down, and you kind of like have to suspend disbelief in inverted commas that you know no one would find out about it with Karen as noble. But you, you get an example there of something that just genuinely in history happened and everybody whitewashed and, and walked away from, and nobody knew. So it at least leads a bit of credence to the fact that all the crazy stuff we get up to in RPGs quite often real life's got um, even stranger stuff out there. I guess if you dig about, it's a good source of uh, inspiration for crazy stuff if you look into history. But um, you, you've also got some roots um, down in South America, haven't you? As well, I was wondering if you've got anything in the pipeline that might dig into you know Aztecs, Mayans, that that kind of stuff, just to kind of go outside of the the main North concert of the. Of the uh, US, because certainly a lot of games we have over in the UK are based in this kind of like medieval European sort of fantasy. So I was wondering if there's any scope for doing stuff that's outside of your usual run of the mill Tolkien, Wuffer Up, you know, all those kind of games we've mentioned. It's that kind of fantasy. What else have we got that's kind of like out there that's uh, perhaps undermined or, or could do with a bit more exploration or has got cool things in it that perhaps we don't know just from a Western audience point of view? I have been reading a lot about Peruvian culture because I, as I get older, I, I do wonder about my ancestry. And the thing is, because of my mother's life story, I don't actually know very much about about her family. I don't know much about her ancestors, um, you know, her her parents, her grandparents. I, I, I met my grandmother on my mom's side once. And I don't know her name. And wow. there are various reasons for that. But So I have very little connection to it through family. And even though Spanish was my first language, and I did learn a lot about Peru, and actually visited the country when I was very, very little, too little to remember, although I've seen the photos of Machu Picchu um, there with my dad and mom. But I, I don't remember it, and, and I've never been back. So I guess, as like I said, as I'm getting older, I've, I've begun to read more and more about Peru and its history, I've been digging into the, the, the lore of the Incas and even past that, before them, the Moche. And actually, I was thinking about writing a tabletop role-playing game source book inspired by their myths and legends, by their culture. But in the end, I actually wound up writing a novel called Mask Beneath Her Face, which is about a Peruvian-American girl named Cristina Vargas and her desire to connect with the myths and legends of, of her people. Because she, like me, has grown up in the U.S. and feels very disconnected from her roots, and yet at the same time has this longing for a sense of belonging and feels like a stranger in her home country, feels like a foreigner, doesn't really understand what's going on, doesn't really relate to any of the people that she meets, feels isolated. And that is definitely how I felt as a kid. Um, less so, you know, as an adult, simply because I think I'm a little bit more blasé about it. In the end, it doesn't matter. We're going to be nuked by North Korea. Fuck it. So I'm not as anxious about my, my origin story. Um, I just, I'm, I'm fascinated by it more than anything else. The Moche had a god, a spider god, El Dogoyador, the decapitator. That's the only name that we have for it because the scientists 
uh, and anthropologists and archaeologists who investigate such things haven't yet found a written language that they can use to decipher the actual name of this deity, which appears to be half spider, half jaguar, and yet vaguely anthropomorphic. And so that's a that's a, also a factor in, in Mask Beneath Her Face, you know, her communion with the strange deity of, of her ancestors and her attempt to understand why. And, you know, the more I read, the more fascinating it is. The Moche worshipped spiders because they were these entities that would keep their crops safe. These spiders would would devour insects that spread pestilence and insects that would blight their crops. The spider was a protector. Uh, a beautiful creature, something to revere, not something to fear. And decapitation, well, how else do you dispose of your enemies? Obviously, you chop their heads off. <laughs> um, and it's like she plays and, all over again. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's a recurring theme. I mean, I I saw that and I thought I, these are my people. That's fascinating. <laughs> that, and and yet the the funny thing about mask beneath her face is it's also inspired by my my own childhood. Um, sneaking downstairs in the middle of the night to watch HBO so that I could watch movies like uh, Halloween and and Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street. And of course, VHS was a big factor as well in the 1980s because everybody's, everybody had a friend who had a videotape, uh, you know, with, with, um, with some slasher movie on it. And then sleep overnight, somebody would bring it over and say, I've got this amazing new movie we have to see. And, and that's how I saw things like Alien and The Thing back in, back in the 80s. So that's a big factor, too. The story is heavily inspired by the slasher movies of the 1980s, and yet also I've, I've woven my daydreams of ever actually feeling Peruvian. Does that make sense? And I don't actually feel it. I, I don't feel American either. I just I don't think I could actually put it into words if I had to. I, I'm just sort of here. I don't actually relate to any culture, but I do pick and choose the little tidbits that I find here and there and say, well, this this works you know this this is something i find interesting I, I was reading about jamestown and as a kid i actually went to jamestown i lived in that neighborhood i lived in in virginia and we took field trips to colonial williamsburg and jamestown to see the the fort and the recreations and, and so forth and that was lovely but i didn't feel anything until i read a true account written by i believe his name was percy and he had written that the, the jamestown colony was plagued by starvation they'd run out of food the winter was brutal they were desperate desperate and after they ate all the food uh they went into the woods to find snakes and then some of them went into the woods and, and found mushrooms and ate those and died horribly because they were poisonous and they boiled their boot leather and their belts and they ate that and then when they ran out of that a man was found covered in blood and they hung him from his thumbs and put weights on his ankles until he confessed that he'd murdered his wife and cut out the baby from her womb and threw that in the river because that was that was too far. But then he ate his wife. And <laughs> I thought, I'm now interested in the history of Virginia and the settlers, right? This this hit a nerve for me. This made me interested. And I, I, I recognize, of course, that's not necessarily healthy or normal, but I also thought <laughs> that it was a vein worth tapping and exploring and so that's why I wrote the novel, because it's about a girl who's in the same boat. She doesn't relate to anything around her, but she picks and chooses the little bits that bring her a little bit of joy and tries to use that to change the world. Raphael, I um, I love your novels, um, speaking of which. I mean, I hate to be a bit of a fanboy and a bit gushing here, but um, The Astounding Antagonist, I thought genuinely is one of the, the finest books I've read in recent years. I really, really loved it. Wow, um, thanks so much. And... 
Oh no, it's, it's a, a real piece of work, and and you know, it, and it and it does something with a genre which is normally kind of where superheroes, well, supervillains to be exact, it's normally treated in a bit of a bubblegum kind of fashion, a bit for color. But you know, to to read uh, the characters had such depth, and and the plot was cracking along. Well, I can't recommend it highly enough, and I always do recommend it to people. And so I wanted to ask when you. When you get your initial ideas, or, or whether it be about Jamestown or something from Peru or whatever, whatever piques your interest, do you set out with an idea and then it finds its own format? Can you tell when something's going to be a novel or you're going to turn it into a dungeon module? Or, or do you start with, I'm going to write a book here or I'm going to write a monster man or I'm going to write a supplement? What order does, does this stuff filter into your brain into and, and does it ever change along the way? It's a good question. Typically, I, I typically I do think I'm gonna write a new dungeon, or I'm gonna write a monster manual, and then I start brainstorming ideas. But yeah, every once in a while, it turns out that I'm wrong. And and I had actually thought for a while about writing um, a book about Ukupacha, which is the underworld of of the Incas. Um, and th- there was also going to be a book about Mictlan, which is the underworld of the Aztecs, and and so forth. But the more that I researched Ukupacha and the more I researched the Incas, the more interested I became in their predecessors, the Moche. And that's how I wound up writing a novel instead of a role-playing game source book. And, you know, one of these days, maybe I'll go back and, and actually finish writing Ukupacha. But I, I, I probably won't just because I've got so many projects going on right now. I, I don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. Mm. But, yeah, typically I'll start with a, just a simple seed of an idea, just a scrap of, of, of tissue. Um, with the antagonists, I had the idea that in a world where those who are in charge are hegemonists, jackbooted thugs, looters, in a world where ordinary people have no power whatsoever, would a Superman really be uh, heroic? And if he were, would he be perceived as a threat? On the other hand, would a bank robber actually be such a terrible thing? I mean, would somebody who steals from the wealthy, who steals from hedge fund managers, for example, be considered a hero to the people? Would he be considered a threat to the system? Does somebody who beats up muggers actually make the world a better place? Uh, or is, mm. is you know somebody who wants to tear the system down and start over going to be more heroic? And it's a simple concept, and it's one that's been done before. And so I almost abandoned the project simply because I thought, you know, other people have done this and they're better writers than I am. But then I thought, well, I, I'm going to give it a try. And what I'll do to make myself happy is I'll put a Satanist in there. So Belfagor, Belf- mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know, the devil-worshipping, church-burning, priest-murdering sociopath, turned out to be one of my favorites just because I thought, what if, what if Superman were a Dominionist? And I don't know if you're familiar with Dominionists. No. Oh, they're scary. They're scary. <laughs> <laughs> There's the belief that uh, there are seven mountains and then the Dominionists must take over the world for Christ. And At any rate, they, they, they believe in infiltrating um, uh, various levels of government uh, in order to exert their will and, and build a theocracy. And so what if what if Superman were one of them? Well, his doomsday or his dark side, whatever, uh, would have to be a devil worshiper. Hmm. And so that was a big thing, the idea that there would have to be at some point a massive battle between a, a Superman figure, except perhaps with a cross on his chest instead of the letter S, and his counterpart, instead of doomsday or, or, or dark side or someone like that, we'd, we'd just have this demonic creature in a suit of armor and and then instead of batman and harley quinn we'd have verdict versus motley 
representing law and anarchy or law and activism perhaps and 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 so those very simple images you know these these very straightforward ideas were the basis of the novel but then i spent months and months and months writing the outline in fact the bulk of the writing was uh paragraph after paragraph of of bullet points and and just jotted notes and in, in outline form until finally i think I, I wound up with an outline of about 100 150 pages at which point i started actually writing the novel wow yeah that's the process that i use on all my novels and i i, I do that simply because i usually wind up with at the end uh, a, a story that's sufficiently byzantine to confuse myself and then I think, well, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to be able to keep this straight if I don't organize it very effectively. But that, that's a holdover from the work that I do in video games because when, when writing a video game, I usually am required by the design director or creative director or narrative designer to outline everything and produce a number of process-related documents that sort of outline what the premise of the story is and who the characters are and what the major events and locations are going to be. So by force of habit, that's how I approach writing a novel. Which sounds a lot like an RPG published scenario. It's a, it's a great big list of bullet points and possible plots, and here's some characters. And when I look at Gaz's GM notes, it looks a lot like you know if somebody could, if, especially Gaz, if he could sit down and be bothered to firm it up properly, it might turn into a book. <laughs> because that's that's what a lot of scenarios look like, right? Aren't we? We're all budding novelists. It's just most of us don't spend the hundred and fifty days actually fleshing it out like you do. <laughs> that's actually that's absolutely true. I, I have felt that uh, in particular one of the I want to say hot war games that you ran, Gaz. Where oh, I don't want to I don't want to say because I don't know if I'd spoil the narrative by talking about the fact that well, there, there was a horrific car crash at the end. I don't know if you remember that one. Uh, hmm. Uh, that probably doesn't narrow it down for him. Say <laughs> <laughs> what you want. The girl was the, 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 one of the agents. This woman was pregnant, and it was it was just tragic, and it was so perfectly executed because it it was organic, it was emergent, it it, it resulted as a res, as as a result of the, the players' choices. So it didn't feel scripted at all. It just happened, and it was very poignant and awful, and and it was almost as though. John Le Carre had written a, a supernatural horror novel. It really flowed perfectly. Uh, Hot War is a good game, but yeah, the way you ran it uh, was was phenomenal. I think stories like that could actually be terrific uh, novellas or even novels. Yeah, I, I I do agree with that. I think that's why there are quite a few novelists who emerge from the tabletop role playing game scene. I mean, it, it it does encourage you to sort of codify what the steps are. In fact, a lot of the more recent story games like over the past 10 years, have really stressed the core building blocks of how to write a novel. You know, you, you start mm. with a scene that focuses on a character with a question or a goal, and at the end you have to resolve it with a, did they succeed, yes or no? And regardless of whether they succeed or fail, there should be some sort of negative fallout that exacerbates the tension and leads to the next scene. You know, games like Fiasco or Apocalypse World definitely have a flow that's very similar to the structure of, of storytelling in film or TV or, or, or literature. I like that a lot. Yeah, definitely. I, I think uh, it's probably worth mentioning that the other game you did, which was specifically for the format of what we're doing now, talking over Google Hangouts, but uh, you produced a game called View Screen, which was uh, very much, um, uh, I want to say freeform, but it's, it's very much about the characters and uh, the emergent story based on what people do and say to each other, rather than it being leaning on a vast tome of rules or anything like that and it's specifically designed for this kind of interface so um was that a conscious decision to make something that you could play 
online or was it just like a neat idea you thought well maybe this can work and what we'll give that a go or how did it sort of like come about it was a reaction to a, a number of games that I'd played via Hangouts. I'd played a, a few games of different types, story games, OSR games, etc., via Hangouts. And while they were enjoyable, the mechanics didn't really flow for me. The mechanics actually felt like they were slowing the game down. All right, everybody, let's roll initiative, clatter of dice. Okay, I got a five, I got a three, I got a two. It's a lot easier when we're all sitting around a table looking at each other's dice and a, a great deal of the procedure is streamlined because we are all present and glancing at one another's character sheets and well aware of what everyone else in the party is doing. You can read body language, you know when to lean forward and speak, when to lean back and let somebody else have the floor. It just makes it a lot easier, but uh, observing the way that Hangouts games tended to play and also factoring in the inevitable complications of technology, people getting dropped, people suffering from lag or not understanding each other or speaking at the same time, I thought what would be a way to sort of transform some of these weaknesses into strengths and sidestep the process of rolling dice. And, you know, my initial design actually did use dice and, and some of the playtesting revealed that that just wasn't going to work. And, and so each iteration got a little bit simpler until at the end you literally just had a single character sheet and you would just scratch things off, you know, X through a circle and you're done, like filling out your, your tax form. Mm-hmm. Um, and that made it a lot easier to play Viewscreen. And also the idea of LARPing simply because... I thought, you know, I I don't like three-hour games through Google Hangouts or any other video chat software. Three-hour games in person, great. Let's grab another slice of pizza and hang out for a minute. Okay, let's get back to the game. But sitting in my chair staring at a screen, I'd like to keep it at, you know, an hour and a half tops. 90 minutes is great, Mm. less if possible. And I thought, well, if you just eliminated all the out-of-character banter and everything was in character, it would just be a more intense experience. It would be uh, more memorable because you would be basically in that zone for just one really intense hour and then you'd be finished so that's that was the seed um behind the idea and then of course i thought well what would be the justification for a live action game with screens everybody's sitting around yelling at their screen just like in a a science fiction movie where they're all separated by the xenomorph or some quantum anomaly and they're all stranded on board the ship yelling at each other through their view screens and yeah playtesting really the playtesters were amazing I, i got really lucky um to have some fantastic feedback which helped me narrow down all the things that i wanted to to cut leaving a very very simple game yeah I and mean, i've had a few goals on that and i think it, it applied you can kind of skin it to other things as well can't you? i remember one very early one we played i think it was yeah prime minister Dorwood was in and a couple of others but we played um like um almost like saruman and some of the wizards in towers using palantir to kind of talk to each other and and solve some problem of a mass undead army across nice. the land or something like that, which really fit the format as well. If you imagine yourself peering into some kind of Sauron's eye to kind of communicate with a necromancer down the street you always hated, but you need his help right now. You know, uh, someone had actually created a really uh, beautiful interface that you would overlay, and it was uh, a, a crystal ball surrounded by sort of this mist. And they ran the game on, I think uh, I think it's on Vimeo. It's not on YouTube. I think it's on Vimeo. But they, they ran that version of uh, Crystal Ball, which was the view screen hack that, that's inspired by medieval fantasy. And so, yeah, you've got the necromancer and the, uh, the, the, the druid and the, the wizard all working together um, or kind of conspiring against one another, as the case may be. And, and yeah, that, that was a lot of fun. And then Jason Morningstar came up with a really crazy one called Cancel Christmas, which was about a... Uh, a bunch of uh, persons who worked at uh, nuclear launch facilities during the Cold War, and it was audio only. So they're all communicating with each other 
over the radio and they're all saying you know we've got movement coming from russia is it a weather balloon is it a nuke what do we do and they couldn't get a hold of of you know the commanding officers they didn't know what to do and so one of them is like no we've, we've got to launch we've got to assume the worst and the others are like no you're crazy you'll kill millions of people it's very tense and I, I i enjoyed that one as well so yeah i mean the the, the format um opens itself up to a lot of possibilities i haven't seen I'm sure there are other games out there that do it. I, I haven't explored enough to, to see any others, but I, I keep hoping that, that somebody will, will do something similar because the problem is I, I always wind up writing the view screen scenario so I already know how it's going to end. So I'd like somebody else to do it so that I can play it. That's the GM's problem worldwide. Yes. <laughs> Why can't I get people to run games for me? Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned you're crazy busy at the minute. Have you got anything in the pipeline that our, our, both our listeners might be interested in? Let's see. I, I am working on a new version of Pandemonio that is uh, OSR compatible, simply because I haven't seen nearly enough OSR modern. I love yeah, you know, basic, yeah. basic D&D, but I'd love to see basic D&D with uh, trans ams and shotguns. And by modern, of course, I mean 1985. Um, <laughs> yeah, as I mentioned before, <laughs> that's where I live. Um, the year live after death came out. Uh, so I, I am working on on Pandemonium with hit points and armor class and all of that. Uh, I don't know when that'll be finished. Um, I am working on a game that I'm not 100 percent sure what I'm going to call it, but it's a it's a source book for OSR games. I think I'm going to call it the Metallic Tome to to follow the example of the Teratic Tome. And this one is going to be uh, new weapons, spells, character classes, and monsters for OSR games inspired by heavy metal music of the 1980s. And the genre will sort of indicate what kind of character you have. So if you listen to a lot of, of speed metal, your character will have... I don't know if you remember like the CD cases from the 80s. Like If you had a speed metal band in the 80s, you had to wear camouflage fatigues, a, yeah. a belt with bullets <laughs> on it. Right? It, was a, it was mandatory. And... Um, <laughs> If you were in a death metal band, you know, you had to have, you sort of had to look like you would drive up in a van and throw it open, <laughs> you know, like lean out, hey kids, you know, you just had to have a certain look. <laughs> if you were in a death metal band in the 80s, it's just great. And so if, you're, if, if your character's musical inspiration is power metal, then of course you look like a Viking or a warrior with a loincloth and a sword like a man of war cover. So that's that's the inspiration for that book. But I'm I'm so far behind on both of those because... Jim Raggi approached me a little while ago and said, I have an idea. It's crazy. And he told me, and I said, yeah, that's crazy. I don't know. And he said, it'll probably go really badly because of this and this and this. And I was like, oh, sign me up. So <laughs> I'm I'm working with him on this. No, it's actually going really well. It's really, it's really fun. It is going to take me a long time. So I'm going to be committed to working with him on, on this project for the immediate future. And it's really the only thing I'm working on other than I am working. I've started on a new horror novel. And this one uh, is actually inspired by my wife. Take from that one, <laughs> she'll be delighted. <laughs> She's actually made a cameo in pretty much every novel I've ever written. In the astounding antagonists, she is Helen Damnation. Um, oh, okay, yeah, cool. Helen is definitely my Heather. Um, in in Hex Communicated, the character of Elspeth Honeycutt, Heather. So she shows up all over the place in my books. And she's definitely going to be the inspiration for the, the novel I'm writing now. But it's too early to really talk about. And those two projects are really keeping me going. Although uh, there's every chance that tomorrow I'll get a phone call from somebody and asking me if I want to do another video game. I had a video game came out maybe six months ago. Uh, Modern Combat Versus. That was fun. 
Uh, I worked on the story design and early character design for that. So, you know, it's possible sometime in 2018 I'll, I'll wind up working on another video game. We'll see. So, cool. Where can people go to find out about your stuff then, Raphael? Uh, give us some links. Give us some places where people can reach out. Sure. I'm on Google+, Twitter, and Instagram, and Facebook. But RaphaelChandler.com has links to all of the above. And that's where I post yeah, links to the social media and all the books that I have available. And I love to hear from people. I love to chat. I'm very chatty. Very. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, and I, I don't think this is the sort of self-deprecating humor that sometimes people employ in an attempt to humble brag. I, I sincerely mean I don't really <laughs> like to think awfully hard about game design or politics or anything like that. I, I enjoy reading the things that I like to read and musing about it and going, yeah, that's pretty disembowelment. I like it. Right? <laughs> like, that's nice. You know, cannibalism. Really? Yes. Okay. I like it. But I don't ever really post anything of significance where people would be like, yeah, he really put a lot of thought into that. I don't do that. So if you're, <laughs> if you're the sort of person who thinks, well, I, I'd like to know his opinion on this burning issue that the entire community has been grappling with <laughs> no no i cannot help you i cannot help you with that if you have a favorite masters of the universe figure you'd like to talk about i'm your man this is what we've been missing out on guys we've been asking the deep questions but we should have been living in a world of toys and comic books all this time i knew it, there it is. <laughs> If there's burning questions from 1985, we'll get them collated and send them across. I'm sure there's a few. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I've wanted to interact a few times, but you've seen quite a to me because there's all kinds of stuff. I did like the um, the guy who had speed metal on his T-shirt. Just It, it made me laugh because I thought parents think that drug dealers advertise in that way. You're kind of like, how are drug dealers? How am I going to get my, to my target market? What I'll do is I'll just wear it on my vest and then, you know, my customers <laughs> will come to me. That's like... <laughs> just the ludicrousness of that thought that like drug dealers yeah they they were big A-boards saying get your speedballs here <laughs> it's genius yeah and all the video nasties and stuff I used to watch I think I watched Evil Dead 2 for the first time on a grainy VHS around my mate's house kind of thing and 3 o'clock in the afternoon with the curtains shut so it was dark and scary and stuff. oh all, that's all fantastic yeah because it was like an 8th generation copy so the time we got it it looked like it was snowing all the time you could barely tell what was happening (laughs) (laughs) every now and again a pencil went to someone's heel or something you were like oh my god what's that what's happened all the more scary because you couldn't tell the other half of the film what was going on but you know all good (laughs) that's great you can't go back to that you know yeah thanks very much for talking to us Raphael it's been a pleasure and uh, I'll post some links in the show notes and stuff like that so people can get hold of you and buy your excellent produce Thanks so much for having me. It was lovely talking to the both of you. I had a great time. Great. Cheers, Raphael. Real pleasure. Happy holidays to both. You too, man. Take care. You can get in touch with the Smart Party via your favourite electronic means. Look us up on the forums where we're just about everywhere. Or you can simply email us at thesmartparty at hotmail.com. Your comments, insights, questions and revelations are always welcome. Roll diplomacy.